Welcome back everyone to Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs. My name is Dr. Jocelyn Conley, pelvic floor physical therapist and founder of the Vagina Doc. And it's been some time. A lot of things have happened both professionally and just with my business that I had to step back for a little bit of time. But I am back and I am so excited to share this upcoming episode with you because I have been trying to get this guest on the show for so long now. So let me introduce you to uh, our guest. Her name is Dr. Lauren Walker, and she is a clinical psychologist and an expert in sexuality and intimate relationships. She also is an adjunct associate professor at the University of Calgary in Alberta, Canada, and there she conducts research on cancer and sexuality. Super cool. She was recognized this year for her work and named a top 40 under 40 in her city, which is super awesome. And I'm just so lucky to have her on, but I had wanted her to come on the show because she, her work is so important in my work. And oftentimes people come to see me and I'm like, while we can work together, I think you would benefit from speaking to someone like Lauren. So in this episode, we talk about her journey getting into this specialty in psychology and what she sees people struggle with, how she helps them. We talk about, obviously, a lot of things about sexuality and and sex, and particularly young moms and postmenopausal women that are struggling with low sexual desire or people with pain around or surrounding uh, intercourse or intimacy in general, what she does to help them. And we talk about her approach, which is super cool. And, and she offers some resources and some tips. So without further ado, let's get this show started. But before we begin, remember our disclaimer, anything discussed in the show is for information, education, and entertainment purposes only, and should not be used in lieu of, or in substitute of medical advice, diagnosis, and, or treatment. So let's get into today's show. Good morning. How are you, Lauren? Can you hear me? I can. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Awesome. I've got, um, there's like a, a little heater here that's keeping me warm because I'm in my basement this morning. My kiddos were running around upstairs. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we're good. I'm assuming you can edit this if necessary. <laughs> yes. And I don't hear anything, but it does make me laugh that you have a heater on and here I, I am. It's probably hot there. It's our, well, you know, it's 75 degrees right now, which I will take. It's supposed to be only only 96 as oh my the high. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it. I, I'm, I'm jealous that you have Are a heater you? on. <laughs> well, I think if we traded, we would probably realize the grass isn't always greener on the other side, right? You know, maybe it is, though, where you live because it is, 
you're in you're in Alberta, right? Yep, Calgary, Alberta. Oh my gosh. So you have you're just blasted by amazing mountains and I'm a mountain girl, so I don't know. I mean, best of both worlds would mean I haven't my Arizona home that I come to from say November to March or exactly. April. And then I'm in the Rocky mountains of Canada the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Have you guys gotten snow yet? No, no. Uh, last year at this time we had about a snow, but then it usually goes away, comes and goes. So it doesn't stay all winter. Um, it does get more mild again, but no, we are having a beautiful fall here, which is really gorgeous. Anytime you want to just send me Instagram pics of your views, feel okay. free. I'll send you some good mountain pics. I won't be, uh, I won't get too jealous. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be good. Good. Like, oh man. Yeah. I got to get out there. So anyways, I want you to introduce yourself because the way I don't, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with how, uh, the people out in the States identify differently from a professional standpoint than you. So why don't you tell us where, wh what you do and yeah. then how you got into what you're currently doing? For sure. So I am a clinical psychologist. So I'm trained to work with all aspects of mental health and also health. So I work in health psychology. I have been um, working at the cancer center locally for many, many years. That's where I did my dissertation research. And more recently in the last several years have um, branched out to do sexuality-based work, not in the cancer center. So with all comers, anyone who has sexual health concerns. But I did start out in the cancer center, which is actually how I have to kind of credit developing an interest in sexuality. I started out as an undergraduate who was looking for a research project as part of an honors degree. It was a requirement for my degree. Um, not something that I really thought that I was super interested in, but like had to do it for school. And lo and behold, found that I really enjoyed working in that area. So it's kind of serendipitous that I ended up falling into sexuality. It wasn't something that I had really sought out, you know, as a college students thinking this is really what I want to do. I started out in mental health. So you start your, your foundation is in health psychology, right? If I, if I heard that correctly, yeah. which is a great foundation to have just as a base and then fell into, uh, sexuality and relationship psychology mm -hmm. into the cancer center. So now where are you? So now I actually have two focuses to my work. Um, so as a psychologist who has done a PhD level training, I really value both the clinical aspect to my work. So that's the one-on-one -on -one counseling with people, couples counseling, really doing that one-on-one -on -one work, face-to-face -face work. And then also I really value research. So um, I will say it's clinically oriented research. So it's basically helping people uh, developing treatment programs, and then evaluating those programs to make sure that we know that they're actually helping people. We're assessing them with outcomes over the course of time. And so 
I have both aspects to my job. So I continue to do research at the cancer center where I'm developing new programs and evaluating them. And then I also have a clinical private practice where people from all walks of life can come into my office and, and work directly with me. Wow. That's, that's awesome. And I have to say that I don't, I mean, I don't want this to come off wrong, but I think it's easier to talk about the side effects of cancer treatment or procedures on sexual health than be forthright and say, hey, I've been having problems with my sexual health and I, all my life. So getting that exposure and having that practice to have those conversations with people, I mean, had to be a great way to segue into, hey, no, I'm, I'm focusing in this, this area and I can hold space for people that have had problems with sexuality or relationships or whatever, and they didn't have cancer treatment or nothing that, you know, let's say if someone had a radiation to their pelvis and now they have vaginal stenosis. Exactly. Yeah. So I have like a million questions for you because I mean, I work in the space where people have often have issues with intimacy. And it's really challenging to get people to one, go and do that self-work on, am I satisfied with my, where I am and also do something about it. So how do you get people to, how do you get people to talk about their issues with intimacy or Let's, let's back up for a moment and talk about what do you find that people struggle with most? So um, I want to comment on what you said about how within a cancer setting, it may feel more legitimate to say, hey, I had this treatment, it caused a problem, now I need help with that problem. Um, what I've actually found is if, if someone is being treated within the healthcare system, that it's often actually not really talked about. It's overlooked, it's ignored. And so cancer patients feel like, am I allowed to talk about this stuff with my doctor? You know, here I am, I should be happy that I'm having this life-saving treatment. And then I'm gonna go complain that I have these symptoms. So a lot of times either people feel like it's not valid, they shouldn't bring it up, or they're worried about embarrassing their provider or their providers worried about embarrassing the patient. So I find that there's just still so much stigma, regardless of where you are in terms of talking about sexual health. It's like, am I allowed to bring this up? Is it valid? Totally. For those people who are not within a health setting where they can point to a cause and say, hey, it's my, it's my diabetes or it's my uh, cancer treatment or you know, even it's my endometriosis, whatever it might be that's causing the problems course, we know that sexuality impacts everybody to whatever extent. And so everyone can have challenges. And then those people may not even know that that's a common experience. I think most people feel like they're the only one who's struggling and they don't talk to their friends because why would you want to tell your friends you're having a problem? And if people are talking about sex, 
they're often talking about like how good it is and you know the great new guy that they met or whatever that might be so they're usually not sharing the things that they're embarrassed about or that they're worried about so i think that there's just still huge stigma about sexual problems Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the cancer because of the people that have been treated for cancer, because we see them at a different point, but we see a small, probably a small pop, uh, portion of those people being treated that don't feel like they can talk about it. And one of the biggest things that people say to me is like, no one told me that this procedure was going to have this impact. No one mentioned that I would not be able to do X, Y, and Z, or I'd have struggles with X, Y, and Z. And if it were different, I would want, I might've chosen the quality of life over, I would have taken the risk. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that. And then second, yeah, uh, with people not talking about it. I remember in college, that that was, I felt like in this cave, alone and that I had no one to talk about Yeah, that I felt just like so broken and I was the only one that wasn't having this amazing experience amazing experiences like other people and then I couldn't and then that made me even more weird so mm-hmm. can you just get how do you define the term sexuality and sex It's an an interesting question. (laughs) You know, I think to the extent that we feel sexual about ourselves, and I actually don't think that that has to be about sex. So I've I've commented on this to people and they're like, often taken aback by this idea, but people often equate sexual activity with sexuality, but it's really our sense of awareness of ourselves and how we express ourselves in a sexual way. And it can have nothing to do with another human being. It can be entirely individual. Uh, that can still include sexual activity, obviously, on your own. Um, but also, we can feel sexual about ourselves with nothing to do with sex. It could be the clothes you wear, the music you listen to, the way you dance or how you know you eat your food even could be considered a sexual thing. And so I think that that's the challenge is that we've really just narrowed it down to sexuality being sexual activity. And I don't think that that's helpful. I think it's helpful to think about it more from a broad perspective. Totally, totally. So how do we start evolving that definition from this traditional perspective from the traditional thought that it meets sexuality means sex and it, it, it involves another person. How do we make it so that, you know, it's, it's an individual energy. It's what we bring to whatever we want to bring and make it's more within ourselves rather than have anything to do with someone else. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the challenge is that there's obviously still so much stigma and shame attached to it. So, um, even if we're talking about sexual activity on a individual level, like we're talking about masturbation or solo sexual practices, um, there can still be a lot of shame like that about that, that I shouldn't um, admit that I do that. Or, um, you know, if you get caught, right, <laughs> you're, you're embarrassed if your mom walks in on you as a teenager, right? Like there's just so much opportunity for shame to be embedded associated with sexuality right from the get-go 
And I think that until we start having these conversations and making it much more normal to talk about and educating better so that we can prevent those kinds of occurrences from happening, I think that will hopefully continue to improve generationally, but it's going to be slow moving. And as we know with any anything where we're trying to challenge like the mainstream messaging that we get from society and from media, it's definitely something that has to be done systemically and individually. Can I ask you a, a question? You don't have to answer it. Okay. <laughs> so I, one of the things that I, I truly believe in for the most part, I mean, I don't, there's definitely, definitely exceptions is I don't, I don't necessarily uh, do everything that like anything that I recommend, I try to have a evidence or research, something to back it in addition to, you know, if I'm not willing to do it, I'm not going to force or suggest that intervention. So I found the more that I got comfortable with myself and what I believe in and who I am, I can talk about sex, doesn't matter age, where you live, what your uh, sexual orientation is, if you're a, how you identify from a gender perspective, I can talk about it because I've explored that myself. What have you, have you had to go do any of your own self work, personal development to be able to cross or have these conversations with, with not only, you know, your patients, but your friends, your, your partner, your, your daughter. Mm -hmm. I mean, your yeah. daughter's pretty young, so little, but uh, she's probably. I mean, you start early. You start early with learning the correct body parts and names for all the body parts, and so as a three-year-old, she's already, you know, using the correct terminology, which some people might kind of turn and go, "Whoa!" Um, but I think that's how you start, right? <laughs> I'm curious, and we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but like what, how the psychology that what we know of, of like Freudian psychology and so on with development and kids kind of intersect with teaching kids the science of their body. Like, is there a conflict? And I know it's normal to explore as a kid, right? So how do you find that line of like letting them explore and then giving them this, like giving them some education on it, but then making sure that they don't go out in public and just spread the word inappropriately. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm less concerned about what she might say in public than what a kid might do in public. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to creating safe space spaces for kids, you want to teach them appropriate terminology. You want to teach them what's appropriate behavior and what's not, who are safe people and who are people that are, you know, not okay to maybe help you with the toilets or things like that so that they can tell you if, if they're at risk, right? So that you are mitigating risk. And I think that's really important. Um, if she walks into, you know, a family dinner or friends dinner and starts using vagina and vulva and penis. Sure. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not probably going to be as embarrassed about that as somebody else who's not maybe quite as deconditioned to sexual based conversations as I am. But yes, I would say more so behavior. I think 
um, is normal for kids to explore and to check themselves out. And you want to make sure that they're doing that in a safe environment, that they're not doing that in front of people where that's not safe with or strangers. And I think the older kids get, you can teach them that that's okay what you're doing and, and that maybe that feels nice or maybe you're just exploring, but that's something that's better to be done in your bedroom. Make sure you're doing that in a private space rather than shaming them and saying like, what are you doing? Stop that. Someone might see, just explain. This is their appropriate places and appropriate times. That would, I want to pause and highlight what you said about mitigating risk. I think regard like that is so I got the chills when you said that, because I think a lot of kids that may have or adults that have maybe experienced on unwanted sexual encounters and sexual assault as kids. They how do you know what's what's okay and what's not okay if you don't know what's down there if it's hush hush we don't talk about that you just know that you're not supposed to let someone down there i mean this this again can be a, a whole different podcast but thank you for for just acknowledging that this proper terminology and discussing what's appropriate behavior and what's not appropriate and who is safe and who isn't safe is so important in empowering your kid to protect themselves. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I I think it is super important to make sure that they are empowered. I like that you use that word, right? Yeah. This, but anyways, moving on to, we could talk about this in a different subject or a different podcast uh, in itself because there's so much to it. You asked me about um, like my current comfort level and being able to be exposed to and confident with a lot of the different strategies that I might use. And I love that you talked about evidence-based practice. And I um, that's a big foundation of what I do as a clinician and a researcher. My research informs my clinical practice. My clinical practice informs the research questions and studies that I'm creating. And so I think we need to make sure that where possible, we are using evidence-based practices. Um, Sexual medicine is a relatively new field. And so sometimes we may be at a loss for what some of those really strong evidence bases are. And so I think we're still drawing from what we know from other fields Um, For example, like cognitive behavioral therapy might be an evidence-based approach in a number of different areas and maybe has a bit less evidence in sexuality, although it does have good evidence, but we know we're using those theories and models. Um, And you also asked about like just my own comfort and exposure. And I mean, to a certain extent, I'm never going to relate to all of the experiences of my clients, right? Right. Saying to somebody that they they can't treat schizophrenia if they've never had schizophrenia themselves, right? Right. But I don't necessarily ascribe to that. But I do think that if I'm asking a client to be able to do some like body awareness exercises, self-exploration, things that are within the realm of, of what anyone could be doing, then yes, I think that we should have some exposure and understanding of that on a personal level as well. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the discomfort among other healthcare providers of different disciplines are so uncomfortable 
with the conversation because that's against their personal values for whatever reason. And that's a problem. Like, cause sexual health and safety bleeds into everything. Like I can't help your back pain if you are constantly guarding and holding tension because of something of an, of an unpleasant sexual experience. Like we have to get down to that and whenever you're ready, of course, but uh, some people just totally disregard asking those questions. And I think that's a really big problem in healthcare in general, but. I say to most of my clients that they probably can't surprise me with the, the stories they may tell me or the words that they may use or the activities that they like to engage in. I'm pretty well read. I've had lots and lots of conversations with people over the years. It may not be my cup of tea, but I'm never going to judge somebody for what they choose to engage in, provided that it is consensual and provided that it is not going to be like harmful to them. Um, I mean, we can talk about harm on a certain level. If harm is like pain that gets you off, like you enjoy that again, as long as you're doing that in a safe setting. So I think limiting risk as much as possible uh, is important. But yeah, I do usually take that kind of perspective of tell me whatever you want to tell me and I'm not going to judge you for it. So how does a, what does a first visit look like with you and how does someone find you and where does it even begin? Yeah, I think there's some, some real issues around access and a lot of people just assume that they don't have support. There's no one to talk to you about these things, but the more, you know, you do dive into Google and <laughs> type in, you know, health for this. Uh, you'll see that there's lots of different providers who can help out with sexuality. Sexuality can be, um, depending on the kind of course you want to take career path wise, you can just go straight down the sexuality pathway and look for, you know, education in sexology. Um, but I think most providers are like healthcare providers, could be pelvic floor physio, could be physicians, psychiatry, psychology, social work who then specialize in, and kind of develop a, a niche or expertise in sexuality. So there's lots of providers who are available, who are willing to talk about these things. Usually we brand ourselves as that. We'll put something on the website that says, hey, I like talking about sexuality, <laughs> come see me. So how do you get people to tell you their story and to fully open up? So most of the people who are coming to see me clinically have sought me out for this reason. So they're looking online for someone who does sex therapy or sexuality-based work or couples-based work. And so I think they have a motivation to seek help. There's so many people who are not ready, who don't reach out or who maybe see a public floor PT or a physician and those providers say, hey, go see a psychologist or go get some counseling, but they just never reach out. They're not ready for that. So the ones who do come see me are usually distressed. They're ready for some kind of support. It might be difficult and feel really vulnerable to open up, but they're usually at that point of readiness. So if we think about, you know, when we're gonna make changes in our lives, 
we might be only in the preparation phase. We might be just contemplating, thinking about it, not quite sure yet. Those usually aren't the folks that are calling me up and booking an appointment. It's usually the people that are ready to do something. I'm glad you mentioned the readiness because I find I see it and I see the people as a pelvic floor PT uh, when sex, like when they need to see a sexual uh, a, a sexual medicine psychologist first, I see it and I can, it's almost like they carry an energy that pushes me away. And it, and in that case, I typically, I mean, depending on the vibe, I don't always do a pelvic floor exam because that tends to make them worse. So I just give, teach them how to, I guess, learn about their body and gain some semblance of control and say, Hey, this is how I can help you. But I really think like out of your web of support, who who needs to be prioritized. But I understand that. I mean, I've, I've been there. Like I still could probably, I still could probably see a sexual, uh, and relationship psychologist. I could, uh, but there is a ready readiness and those people aren't always ready. So it's like, I need to be equipped to give resources. So can you walk through, like, I, I know the, that phase of like pre-contemplation, contemplation. Can you walk through that in like basic terms so that people that might be along the lines of, oh, I tried this, but it didn't work. I quit. I can't stick with it. Why, what are those phases? And what does that mean to, to just everyday people that are not understanding why they're getting, they're just getting help already. Yeah, sure. So um, what we're referring to is the stages of change model. Um, for the technical folks in the room who might be familiar with that. But what it suggests is that most, um, most people fit somewhere on this stage of change where they're ready to make a change or they're not ready. Some people are in the pre-contemplation phase where they're just not even thinking about it. They don't know that maybe they should or might want to make a change. So sort of not even on their radar. Those are the folks that if you refer them, they're just gonna go, oh, nice, thanks. No, I'll just throw this card in the garbage on my way out your office. <laughs> there's the contemplative phase, which is people who think, okay, maybe there's something here, but I'm not sure, maybe I would, maybe I won't, I, I'm not really sure yet. And then as you kind of follow through these phases, there becomes an increasing readiness. Um, and we wouldn't wanna actually give something something someone something until we know they're at that readiness phase where they're saying, okay, I realize I have a, an issue or a symptom. I wanna do something about it and make a change. They would then take that step into action, put that in place. And of course we know that it's difficult to sustain any of these kinds of changes that we make in our life. So we may sort of fall off track. We may you know, be really adherent to our rehabilitation exercises for a certain course of time and then we kind of lose the motivation and fall off. And so I think it's helpful as a provider to prepare your patients that that is something that can happen and that it's not the end of the world if it happens. They can just pick it up when they're ready again. They don't have to feel like I have to be perfect or like sort of that all or nothing mentality. So kind of considering that, one of the things as a provider you may want to be doing with patients is to 
just sort of assess where they're at, right? So are they in the pre-contemplation phase? Well, then don't give them a referral. Are they in the contemplation phase? Well, then ask them a little bit more about their symptoms and what's, what are they struggling with? Because the more they talk about that and the more they talk about how they want that to be different, the more ready they'll be for change. So sometimes it's actually just the conversations you're having. Let them speak about what their symptoms are and how that might be distressing for them rather than pushing them to say, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? They right. may not do that yet. So valuable. Yeah. I mean, for myself and for, I know there are some providers that listen to the podcast. It's like finding that, and that's the art, right? It's like being able to read where they are and then not forcing it, giving them yeah. what they need for where they are. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with staying with a patient who's just contemplating whether they want to do something. Yeah. Then saying, okay, here's your treatment plan do these things because then they're just going to back off. Yeah. And then maybe have a negative experience and never return. So what are some things that people you see have, they have hard time with for people that are listening to this podcast that may be in a pre-contemplation stage that can kind of be like, Oh, that I have those kind of struggles and maybe there, and there is help or there, there, I'm not the only one. Yeah. So um, I'd say some of the most common problems that people come to me for support with relate to, um, so I'll maybe just say for, for all genders, because we don't know who might be listening to this podcast, um, that I see a lot of men or, or people with um, penises who are describing difficulty maintaining or getting erections, usually not because of a physiological cause, but because they end up with performance anxiety where they're really worried about being able to maintain an erection. And then now that's what they're thinking about. They're not thinking about the sexual context and the encounter. And those kinds of thoughts are really anxiety-based. They interfere with the arousal process. And so they actually do end up causing you to not maintain an erection. So I think that's a really, really common concern. Um, and what I often say to a lot of guys is that they shouldn't expect that they should always be able to maintain an erection, that sometimes there's some fluctuation in function and that's totally normal. It's not what we see in mainstream media. It's definitely not what we see in pornography. And so I think we have to challenge the messaging that we're getting and really normalize that sometimes you might not feel all that interested or sometimes you might lose your erection and that's okay. So that's performance anxiety. Um, and then I see a lot of women who have low sexual desire. And that could be what I tend to see is either young moms or postmenopausal women. So I tend to see, and you know, sometimes I even see 18, 19 year old girls as well who are describing this. But I think again, what our assumption is, is that I should have a certain level of desire. And if I don't have that, I have a so um, kind of working with them to figure out what, what are their expectations? Because usually that's the issue. We have a certain expectation of where we should be. We don't feel we meet that expectation. Now we're distressed about it. And then the third group of people that I see a lot are typically um, women or people with vulvas who are experiencing pain. 
So sexual pain and uh, pelvic discomfort during sexual activities. Sometimes that even extends to uh, activities of daily living, toileting, exercise, that kind of thing as well. I want to talk about so performance issues, low sexual desire, and then pain. I want to definitely talk about the last two because that, while there might be one or two uh, percent of the population of the podcast listeners be men, mainly it's people around 20s to to 50s moms. Can I I just add that many of your listeners may have partners who are experiencing performance anxiety? Yes. Okay. Yes. Listeners have pain or they have sexual difficulties. We find that the partners of patients who have sexual difficulties often also have sexual difficulties. So you might get male partners of your female pelvic pain patients in like if we're speaking heterosexual relationships here, who are now having performance issues because they're worried about hurting their partner. So that's why I mentioned it. Oh my gosh. See you guys. I've been trying to get Lauren on the podcast for months now. And this is why, this is why she's amazing. Okay. That is such, um, thank you for bringing that up. So I guess, and I've treated some guys that definitely fit into that first first camp. I've treated women that I've fed with the expectation. So they have performance anxiety yes. that they're, they're fearful. I, I mean the whole gambit and I want to talk about all of these things, but let's talk about how, what, how do you use that model that you shared with me to kind of help them work through that? Like how, what does it look like from day one that they work with you to when they are imp- seeing improvement in their issue? in general, what needs to be put in place? Yeah, so I always, I start with a comprehensive assessment to just look at, you know, what are some of the messaging that we had as children, whether that's through school or religious views or parents or previous experiences that we've had and partnerships that we've had. And then I look at where are we at currently and what are the symptoms that you're experiencing with regards to function. Um, So I divide that into Uh, sexual desire, where are you at in terms of your interest in sexuality, your experience may as well include orgasm as a sort of an outcome, it may or may not, Um, looking at the arousal process of how do you arrive at that conclusion, and then also looking at um, how you feel after your sexual experiences. So are you satisfied? Are you in distress? Do you feel like you're flawed in some way? So I'm always looking at all of those components. Now, one of the things that I I teach about is sexual response and sexual desire. And I think a lot of folks start out with this assumption that I should just have a spontaneous urge to be sexual, just like hit me out of the blue, that then I go and I respond to. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes what I tell my clients is that if you're waiting around for that spontaneous urge to hit you, and you're waiting around for it to hit your partner and you're expecting it to happen simultaneously, you know, you might be waiting a long time. (laughs) And so I think the myth is that we should be sexual only when we have this random spontaneous desire hit us. And what I work with my client base a lot is to help educate them that we don't always need to be 
you know, hot and horny and ready to go in order to agree to have a sexual experience. Sometimes we might say, I'm feeling kind of neutral. I could take it or leave it. But maybe if we get started, I'll actually get warmed up and get interested and find that I really do want this. And so that model that I was, we were chatting about offline really introduces that for a lot of people, we don't start out with spontaneous desire all the time, maybe sometimes. We start out with a conscious choice where we're saying, yeah, I can get in the mood or yeah, this might be fun. It might feel good. It might be nice to feel close to my partner. So a variety of different reasons that we might choose to engage in. We then start having sex. We then start to feel aroused and interested and that's when responsive desire comes in. That's when you're like, yeah, this is awesome. I like this, I want more. Or why don't I do this more often? So brilliant. And I love this so much because it's so relatable with like a workout. Well, first of all, let's just, let's just recognize that intimacy is physical activity. And when, I mean, like this morning, I go to the gym and I am not ready to go until like two minutes into the workout, even after the warm up, And I'm still like, uh, say, I really want to do this, but I will. <laughs> right. It's the same thing. And, oh my gosh, that's huge to get people over that barrier of spontaneity versus conscious choice and making it part of your self-care and, uh, relationship development or nurturing then then it not then it's supposed to be this just like thing that just happens right yeah and that model if any of the listeners are interested in checking it out it's uh rosemary Bisson, a researcher out of university of british columbia and her team many people have contributed to this over the years um it's called the circular sexual response cycle so it suggests that really it's not this linear process that starts out with desire and you know ends with orgasm, but rather it can start out um, with a conscious choice. And that over the course of time, every time you engage in sexual activity, it is influences your desire to be sexual again in the future. So I love what you said about equating this to workouts. I do this all the time, but I always ask my clients if they are you know, do they exercise? Can they relate to this before I dive into that analogy? If I waited for every time that I really wanted to work out, I would work out once in a blue moon. <laughs> exactly. Do it because I know that it will feel good. I'll feel, you know, glad that I did it. It's an investment in my health and my mental health. And so I show up and at the beginning, I might not really want to, but as I warm up and get engaged, I'm like, this isn't so bad. In fact, actually, maybe this is good. Yes. And when you set intention, like some at intention of it, rather than like an outcome, like have an intention versus an, the way I would put it is like I this morning I did a workout and I could have said, I want to finish first in front of everyone else. I'm going to parallel that too is like, I want to end this experience in, an, in a mind-blowing orgasm outcome versus no, I'm going to approach this workout and I'm going to focus on pacing with my breathing and making sure that I can time this inhale whenever I am going down in my squat and the exhale when I'm coming up. 
that's like saying, okay, I'm going to be focusing on the sensations that I experience and I'm going to communicate along the way if it's a partnered experience. That is a whole different intention than what I first mentioned is like, I want to have a mind-blowing orgasm or I want to finish before everyone else Mm -hmm. in this workout class. So it's not- difference between process and and enjoying all of the aspects of the process versus the outcome. Changing gears just a little bit. One of the things that I, as a provider, and maybe I need to work on this just as professional development, so I'm better, but sometimes the interview process and the connection that I have with my patients I'm, I have them work on like personal development and self-awareness and how they think about different things. And they sometimes come to the realization that they're, them and their partners are so on different levels that it's just really like, they come to the question, am I living in this relationship that is a lie or is it a relationship that is fulfilling me? That kills me. And I, at that point, like I leave that encounter and I just, I one say, I never want to be in that kind of relationship. And number two is like, how, how can we get this person out of this rut? Do you find, do you get, take your patients that see you not as a couple or maybe as a couple to that, uh, that, impasse, I guess. Yeah. So a a couple things to say about that. I think one is that individuals look at their relationship through their own lens. So sometimes what you may hear from people is their perception about the scenario. So I'll hear sometimes from people like from Uh, often women who are telling me they have low sexual interest and it's become a problem with their partner. Their partner has higher drive and they have lower drive that uh, my partner only approaches me or wants to be around me or touch me when they want sex. And it's a narrative we tell ourselves and it's a pattern that's become uh, sort of the, the truth for that individual, but it's often not the case. If you actually ask the partner, the partner is saying, I I just want to be close to my partner. I want to cuddle on the couch. I want to feel important to them. And so sometimes I think we need to check how much of this is a narrative that we're telling ourselves versus like the reality of the state of the relationship. And that's where as a couples therapist, I love working with both people in the relationship to be able to explore some of that and help them come to, you know, a more accurate understanding of what each of their intentions are and how their behavior impacts them and how they interpret that. So that's one piece of it. Uh, Inevitably, there are definitely people where the relationship is just super unhealthy and I can try to help them work to a place where they can improve that. But sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes I'll get people who will say, you know, I'm I'm not happy in this relationship. There's nothing I can do about it. And sometimes even say, I can't leave this relationship for whatever reason it's, um, you know, moral beliefs or limitations in being able to step out on their own and support themselves. And so often what I do there is I say, remember, you can be a sexual being outside of your relationship with your partner. So then I focus in on 
what is it about sexuality as an individual that I can help support them with? Wow, that that's really cool that you do that. And starting there with perceptions and then communication and and then looking within oneself, I guess that would be super helpful regardless of the outcome of do they stay together or not. And so what do you take home for you in terms of your practice? If someone is saying, you know, this relationship isn't good for me, you're you're not a couples therapist, right? So that might scope to say, you know, I'm sorry to hear that and I can refer you to resources if that's something you want to talk through with an individual therapist about what you want to do about that or a couples therapist for support, but you can still help remind them that their sexuality is not dependent on another human being. Right. That's number one. And I'm like, you give away control when you say no to your own personal development in your sexuality. And that really hits home. I'm careful of how I say it, but of course. And again, you're thinking about readiness. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I only have so much time left with you and I want to give the listeners some tangible takeaways. What are some tips that you can give them on how to improve their individual sexuality or overcome some of the struggles that we discussed earlier in the interview moving forward, whether that is they're ready or not to go actually seek help if that is an appropriate next step. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that we can all be thinking about doing is expanding the sources of influence in our life on sexuality. So if, um, you know, a lot of folks will say to me, I never had good sexual health education. I, you know, I'm 65 now and I'm learning these things. I wish I learned them when I was 25, but to think about, you know, where are you getting your sources of input? Um, to think about whether these are good sources of input or not. So it might mean following some different accounts on Instagram, joining some Facebook groups, um, tuning into podcasts on the topic, just to expand your horizons so that you have a better sense of what are people doing out there? (laughs) Often we think we're the only one or we think what we're doing is extreme. And when you actually hear the broad spectrum of perspectives that people have, most of us fit somewhere in the middle, statistically speaking. (laughs) So I think that's important to be looking at our sources of influence. If you're comfortable to take a step outside of just the privacy of what are you, you know, scrolling through on your phone, start having some conversations with your friends. Start asking them, hey, is is everything perfect for you? I feel like it's it's perfect for everyone, but maybe not for me. And maybe start to look at some of those beliefs that you have about sexuality. Do you feel like sex is only successful if it ends in an orgasm. Do you assume that sex should always be, you know, mind-blowing and rewarding? (laughs) Sometimes it might not be, and that's not a terrible thing. (laughs) So I think checking out our beliefs, um, maybe even writing down a list of what are some of the beliefs and messages that I've heard over the years, and are those helpful? So I think that's sort of some things you can do individually. Um, Another thing that I think is really helpful. Um, I use, and I, one of my favorite things to use with my clients is mindfulness meditation. So not sure if anyone's, you know, some people are really familiar with this concept, but have never thought about relating it to sexuality and other people have never really got on board the meditation train. Um, (laughs) So one message that I would suggest is that mindfulness meditation from a 
uh, perspective and practice is being more present in the moment and doing so in a non-judgmental and accepting way. So, so many times I hear stories about people who are saying, well, I don't have a good sexual experience. I don't get aroused, but they're not really paying attention to the sex that they're having. They're thinking about their mental to-do list. They're going through a stressful conversation they had with someone, or they're worried about something they have to do at work tomorrow. Those are not arousal conducive thoughts. So the more that you can pay attention to what you're doing while you're doing it, also to try to keep in check the judgmental thoughts that you might have while you're paying attention. Um, and if you can't, that's okay. Just first become aware that you might have some judgmental thoughts. And then I think really just one of my favorite things is to see if you can bring about a sense of curiosity into your practice. So rather than, as you mentioned, if I go into my workout this morning with this sort of outcome orientation versus why don't I just go into it and see what happens, pay attention to what's happening while I'm engaging. So if you're able to pay attention to body sensations and be curious about what you feel, where you feel it, where you don't feel it, and sort of just be open to your experience rather than feeling like it needs to be a certain way have a certain outcome that often will take a lot of the pressure off and just make it a more enjoyable experience. Those were, those tips were fire. Let me summarize them because they were so good. So takeaways are screen your sources of input and maybe remove some that keep you in a dot is I'm hoping I'm using the right one dogmatic place of perception um, and add other sources that expand your overall perception yeah. and open your mind. Be curious with, be, be present in yourself and be curious about your experiences. Be curious about other people's experiences and ask questions to the right people. Yes, to people you feel safe with. Right, and then one way to approach self or partnered pleasure or, or just as separate is mindfulness meditation. And again, being present in your body and what you're feeling and being curious about that. So, yeah. So openness, curious, openness, curiosity, what else? Um, the other piece about the mindfulness is also acceptance. Acceptance. Right? If we're engaging in our sexual experience and we're like, oh, this isn't good. This hurts. This wasn't as good as last time. I wish they were doing something else. I'm paying attention to how my body fat is jiggling during this particular movement, right? That's going to all take you out of being able to attend to and enjoy the stimulation you're experiencing. So we have to feel safe and comfortable to engage. We have to pay attention to what we're doing. We have to experience what we're doing as pleasurable and we have to do so non-judgmentally or curiously. Absolutely, so helpful. Few more questions, not as deep questions. Are you a fan of, I mean, sadly it's over or done, Schitt's Creek? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
when you said uh, one of one of when you said something, I forget which word it was, but the Canadian dialect came out. Yes. <laughs> and then second question I have for you is if I, I mean, I can only imagine if someone like if you and I teamed up on projects or even worked in the same clinic. Wow. How? So if I move to Canada, can I work with you? Yeah. <laughs> and then third, do you have any resources or self uh, guided programs, books that are available to anyone all over the world? Absolutely. So one of my favorite books, um, a collaborator of mine on, on some research studies in the area of mindfulness meditation is written by Dr. Lori Brado and it's called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And it's about cultivating desire through a mindfulness practice. And so that book is really like a step-by-step how-to guide, how to get into mindfulness and learn about it and how to apply it directly to sexuality. What I love about it is it's evidence-based. There's lots of research supporting this. So that's a really great book to read. Um, another one that is one of my favorites is Emily Nagoski's Come As You Are. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one. Uh, it's really a fantastic read on breaking down the science behind uh, female sexuality. So those are two great reads to get you started. Awesome. I will put those in the show notes. Um, you can also follow my Instagram. <laughs> so yes. What is your handle? It's at dr and then my full name so Lauren Walker. And you can put that in your show notes as well. Um, what I'm trying to do there is really just break down stigma around sexuality and to put more messaging out around sex positivity and healthy sexuality. And another component of that is also healthy relationships and self-care, because if we're not caring for ourselves, we'll have nothing left when we try to engage in a sexual relationship. Awesome. Yes, I do highly recommend you follow Dr. Lauren and, uh, anywhere else that you can be found or is Instagram the best place to find you? Best place because it's the most easily consumable, accessible information. You can put my website in your link as well, but I really um, think Instagram's probably the most broadly reaching. Awesome. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, I hope to have more conversations about some of the topics that we touched and if there's any opportunity for collaboration on anything in the future, uh, I would love that. So love thanks for having me, Jocelyn. I know that we've been, uh, it's been a busy summer, <laughs> so it's fall. I'm glad that we did get this scheduled and it was a pretty valuable conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yes. I know. I'm, I would be the same way if I lived where you live. Don't talk to me in the summer because this is my time. <laughs> Enjoy the weather while I have it, right? <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much. Until next time on Real Talk with the Pelvic Docs.